Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks very much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. On the program today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Jennifer Vint about dreams. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much, and thanks so much for having me. Would you like to give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Sure. I'm a philosopher working at Monash University. I've been in Australia since 2015, and before that I was working in Germany at Mainz University near Frankfurt. That's also near where I grew up. I work in philosophy of mind and philosophy of cognitive science on topics related to consciousness and the self. And really generally my interest is in what, in general terms I'm interested in what happens to the mind and what happens to our thoughts when when attention drifts away from what we're currently doing and when we detach from our environment. So that's the case in mind-wandering and fantasy and daydreaming and wakefulness, but it's also the case in sleep when we dream. And so my main research focus then is sleep, dreaming, mind-wandering, and spontaneous experience more generally. I do a lot of this work through conceptual analysis and theoretical work, and I'm really interested in seeing how findings from psychology and cognitive neuroscience can inform a philosophical theory of dreaming, but I also do a lot of interdisciplinary work So collaborating with people from cognitive neuroscience, psychology, sleep and dream research, research on mind wandering, and trying to figure out how we can design better types of experiments to probe changes in experience, for example, during sleep. I'm also just coming back to work actually now after a year of maternity leave, so that's kind of going to be a whole new type of adventure and seeing how to balance balance personal life and, and work and research in a new way. So what was it that inspired you to study dreaming? Well, when I talk to people that study dreaming, a lot of people come to the study of dreaming through an interest in their own dreams, and for me that was different. It kind of worked the other way around. So I was taking an undergraduate class in philosophy of consciousness with Thomas Metzinger in Mainz, and we had to do weekly student presentations, and I put my hand up for the week that had dreaming as a topic. So it really was almost a coincidence. I thought, oh, that could be interesting. And then I got hooked. So I then ended up beyond the student presentation in the undergrad class doing my Ph.D. research on dreaming and have now continued to work on topics related to sleep and dreaming until today. So it just really stuck. Could you explain about the relationship between dreams and the self? I think self-experience. So the experience of being or having a self is written into dream experience or written into the structure of dreaming. So the way I would define dreaming, firstly, is to say that dreams are a kind of immersive mental simulation. They're here and now experiences, and typically they have the form 
of experiencing a world that is centered on a self. Now, how exactly we experience ourselves in dreams and how exactly we experience the world in dreams can take many different forms. It can be more or less similar to the actual world. It can be more or less similar to our waking selves. But that structure, that structure of a self and a world of here and now experience, I would say that is constant across all dreams. And for that reason, dreaming then also becomes really central for, for consciousness research and work on the self, on self-experience more generally, because we can now start asking questions about the factors that influence self-experience and how they change as we move from waking into sleep. So, for instance, how do we, to what extent do we always experience ourselves as bodily selves? Is bodily experience really central to self-experience, or can we have forms of self-experience where we would still say we were or had a self but lacked any kind of bodily experience whatsoever. Now, in waking, we never have that. We always experience ourselves as embodied agents, walking through the world, interacting with other persons and objects. But in certain dreams, you can suddenly lose bodily experience altogether. So sometimes dreamers will say that they were just a point, an unextended point located in a void, for example. I would say that type of experience still has the here and now structure of dreaming, but it lacks bodily self-experience. So there could be examples of self-experience that lack this bodily dimension. Similarly, you can then also think about the relationship between dream, uh, between self-experience and thinking. So how central is cognitive agency being a thinking self really, to self-consciousness more generally. Well, here, dreams, again, seem to be quite different because it's traditionally been thought in philosophy and also in the empirical science that thinking is corrupted in the dream state. So the other thing that we can start investigating then is the relationship between thinking, being a cognitive agent, so a self able to direct the focus of its attention, to deliberately direct what we're thinking about, and self-experience more generally. Now, arguably, thinking, cognitive agency, is central to the way we experience ourselves in wakefulness, but that, again, might be contingent on the wake state. In dreams, thinking is very different in numerous ways. We, we don't have access to autobiographical memory in, in most dreams. We forget important facts about our waking lives, and we often don't think very clearly, so reasoning often tends to take on an ad hoc and often a rational character. So how does that impact how we experience ourselves in dreams? Those are questions I'm interested in, and I think we can then ask a whole array of different questions. So firstly, what is it typically like to have, to be or have a self in our dreams? Are we typically the same person as we are doing wakefulness, or do we often dream about being a different person or maybe a different type of creature entirely, for instance, of being an animal? Self-experience tends to be a lot more fluid in dreams than in wakefulness. We can shift from being someone quite similar to our waking selves to being to identifying with different dream characters, almost like identifying with different avatars in a virtual reality. But also the, the phenomenology of self-experience can be quite different. So there are varying degrees of bodily experience in dreams. Generally, bodily experience can have a very different pattern from waking bodily self-experience. For instance, movement is much more prominent in dreams, whereas feelings of, of pain or touch sensations or heat and cold sensations are extremely rare in our dreams. 
And we can then also think about how these changes in the pattern of self-experience and dreams relate to our sleeping bodies. So how how do these, these rich self-simulations arise in our dreams in a situation where, where the physical body is virtually paralyzed and lying fairly motionless in bed? So how does the change in the connection to the sleeping body become reflected on the level of self-experience and dreams? A final question that we can ask that I've been quite interested in is whether dreams might shed light on the simplest form of self-experience and dreams or something I, Thomas Metzinger, would call minimal phenomenal selfhood, so the simplest way, the simplest form of experiencing oneself as a self. As I was saying earlier, there are certain dreams where the dreamer will, will say afterwards, after awakening, that they still had a self that they were present not as an embodied being, not even as a thinking self necessarily, but just as a point in space. So there was al- it's almost as if self-experience had then become reduced to here and now experience. So there's a phenomenal here and experienced here and experienced now, but all of the further attributes of waking self-experience are missing. I think that that's sufficient for a minimal form of self-experience, and I think that tells us something really interesting about the structure of self-consciousness and consciousness more generally. Why is it that most of us really don't remember our dreams? Now, I remember, well, when I have a dream, I wake up in the morning and it, it tends to be a very vivid memory, but 10 minutes later, I've forgotten all about it. Well, one issue for a lot of people could be that they're just not paying that much attention to their dreams. A really fascinating thing about dream recall is that you get a lot more dream recall the moment you start attending to your dreams. You, you have the intention, for instance, you form the intention before going to sleep that you're going to remember your dream, that you're going to write it down in a dream diary, and then you see a radical increase in dream recall in many people. Very generally, I think spontaneous dream recall, so what we remember or don't remember when we wake up at home in the morning, doesn't really reflect the frequency or the type of experiences that we really have throughout the night. So a fascinating thing is that for most people, if you put them in a sleep laboratory and you wake them up throughout the night from different stages of sleep, and if you then ask them to report what was just going through their minds, they're often able to do so. So the gold standard of dream research does just that. It puts participants in a laboratory, and and traditionally people have then been awakened from REM or rapid eye movement sleep and have been asked to report their dreams. Based on this research, it was then believed that we dream, that dreaming is pretty much identical with with mental activity during rapid eye movement sleep. And so that would mean that for most participants you can get, and by that I mean around 90% of participants, you can get four to five dream reports per night. Now, there are newer studies that are investigating the the occurrence of dreamlike experience outside of REM sleep increasingly. So this includes non-REM sleep, including the deep stages of non-REM sleep or slow-wave sleep. And this is quite fascinating because traditionally it's been believed that those stages of sleep are pretty much lights out, unconscious, there's nobody home. And the interesting thing that's happening right now is that in studies using so-called serial awakening paradigms, People are then awakened every few minutes, pretty much. So maybe at very short time intervals, something like every 10 to 15 minutes throughout the night. And if you do this, again, most people can still report quite rich conscious experiences, even from non-REM sleep awakenings. So even from the deepest stages of non-REM sleep, 
you get roughly equal proportions of people saying they had conscious experiences, of reports of having been genuinely unconscious, not being able to report any conscious experiences, and then kind of an intermediate or what looks like an intermediate type of report of people saying they think they had conscious experiences, but they can't describe any details. But that would suggest that in almost a third of even deep sleep, people are still experiencing dreams. To me, that suggests about the question about dream recall that we are actually able to remember dreams and other sleep-related experiences and mentation quite well. It just takes certain conditions to prompt us to do so. For instance, timed awakenings in the laboratory. What type of changes in brain activity occurs when you begin dreaming? That's a fascinating one, and that's pretty much been a question that has driven sleep and dream research since their inception. So really the beginning of a science of sleep and dreaming was the discovery of rapid eye movement sleep back in the 1950s. And what happened there is that researchers discovered that there's this stage of sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, that is vastly different from so-called non-REM or non-rapid eye movement sleep. So it's characterized by rapid eye movements, as the name of REM sleep already tells us, but it's also characterized by EEG recordings of almost wake-like brain activity and by almost complete physical paralysis. So the physical body is almost completely paralyzed during REM sleep. Muscle tone falls down to a minimum. At the same time, we've got, as I was saying, almost wake-like brain activity happening and these rapid eye movements. And when you wake people up from that sleep stage, they're very likely to report dreams, whereas they're less likely to do so following awakening from non-REM sleep. So the initial idea that dominated dream research was that, well, we're having vivid dream experiences in REM sleep because the brain is actually similarly active to the waking brain. So global measures of overall brain activity are similar and are indicative of dreaming. Whereas slow-wave sleep, deep non-REM sleep, you see, according to global EEG measures, a very different kind of activity. It's it's much slower waves, it's synchronized activity, and it it was believed that that would be a measure of unconsciousness. Now, the thing that that happened then was this idea that you could virtually identify dreaming and REM sleep just was proved to be false. So it was found that you can firstly have REM sleep without dreaming, but you can also have dreamlike experiences even occurring during non-REM sleep, which would seem to suggest that global measures of brain activity are not, in fact, indicative of the presence or absence of consciousness in sleep. So it's quite interesting that, because that whole research then puts pressure on the idea that we could use overall levels or global levels of brain activity as represented in, in sleep stages as an indicator of the presence or absence of consciousness. Now, there's newer work, for example, from the laboratory of Giulio Tononi in Wisconsin-Madison that is investigating the neural correlates of conscious experience, including dreams in non-REM sleep. So this is coming back to these serial awakening paradigms I was mentioning earlier. And what they're finding by awakening participants at very short time intervals throughout the night and from different sleep stages is that, in fact, you firstly can have a lot more conscious experiences, including dreams, even during deep, slow-wave sleep, during the deep stages of non-REM sleep. And the second thing that they're finding is that the 
changes in brain activity that occur and that seem to mark the difference between conscious experience and non-conscious sleep seem to be the same whether we're in REM sleep or in non-REM sleep. So their idea is now that it is not global changes in overall levels of brain activity that marks the difference between dreaming and non-dreaming, but that it's local changes and more specifically a local reduction in slow wave activity in certain areas of the brain that can predict whether a person is dreaming or not. And those local changes will predict, according to their work, whether a person is dreaming or not, independently of which sleep stage they are in. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking with Dr. Jennifer Vint about dreaming. Do you think we really have the ability to describe our dreams accurately? Well, I'd put it this way. I think that under certain conditions, we can at least come close to describing them accurately. I think we clearly make mistakes, and clearly all of our experience tells us that we often do forget our dreams. It's difficult to remember them. Even when we do remember them, they're elusive and easily forgotten, and we often feel uncertain about whether we're describing them accurately. However, I think the task of dream research then becomes to improve the measures that we use to probe subjective experience during sleep. Now, that can include the timing and method of awakening. So, for instance, waking people up and immediately probing them, asking them about subjective experience. It can include the types of questions we ask people, ranging from just asking for free dream reports to asking very specific questions about types of experience during dreams. And it could also include using trained participants. So most studies will, in fact, use people that have good dream recall or so-called high recallers. And you can imagine that then training people and really explaining, for instance, if you were interested in something like dream bizarreness, explaining to participants what you were interested in might might further improve dream recall. I think the whole story gets much more convincing if you consider the opposite side. So many people intuitively think, well, well, dream recall is not reliable. We're prone to mistakes, and of course we are. But again, the challenge then becomes to improve dream reporting and to improve subjective dream reports to make them more reliable. But the opposite side would mean that we would claim that we're systematically deceived about our dreams. So Daniel Dennett, back in the 70s, had a paper called Our Dreams Experiences, where he, where he proposed just that. So he said that something like the cassette theory of dreaming might be the case. So, for instance, if the cassette theory of dreaming were true, that would mean that when we wake up in the morning, we're not really remembering experiences that we had during sleep, but we might be suffering some kind of memory illusion. So there might be a process of instantaneous memory insertion and the insertion of a dream cassette into memory that gets replayed and that creates the illusion that we had a temporally extended vivid dream during sleep when, in fact, nothing was experienced during sleep. If we do that, and his point there was that subjectively based on subjective recall after awakening alone, we would not be able to tell the difference between the cassette theory of dreaming, the idea that dreams are instantaneous memory insertions, and the idea that dreams are experiences during sleep that can be accurately recalled and reported upon awakening. Now, if we assume that something like the cassette theory of dreaming were true, that we were systematically wrong about 
our dreams to the extent that it's not like anything to dream at all. It's just like something to remember our dreams. Well, this would essentially mean that we would be losing the main source of data to study our dreams in general. We just wouldn't be able to make reference to dream reports at all because they would would be systematically misleading. And I think that's just not a viable alternative. I think, especially given the persistent uncertainty about the neural correlates of dreaming and the sleep stage correlates of dreaming, so the association between dreaming and different sleep stages, the shift from thinking that dreaming is possibly related to local changes in brain activity as opposed to the earlier idea that dreaming could be associated essentially with REM sleep. Given the persistent uncertainty about the neural correlates of dreaming and the sleep stage correlates of dreaming, if we also lost the ability to get information about the presence but also the subjective character of dreaming from dream reports, we would virtually be left without any source of data about the subjective experience of dreaming. And I think this would mean that dream research, as it is conducted today, namely research based on the assumption that dream reports are to some extent reliable would have virtually nothing to do with dream experience. And I think that's just a somewhat absurd conclusion. So I think the way forward is to more constructively assume that at least under certain conditions, dream reports are in fact reliable. We can aim to improve those conditions, but these methods of improvement will always mean finding better ways to probe subjective experience, to improve questionnaires, and so on and so forth. And then at the same time, in concert with improving subjective reports of dreaming, we then also need to improve the methods for studying the neural correlates associated with dreaming and different sleep stages. And I think that if these two things, so the subjective side and the objective side of sleep physiology, are developed and improved in concert, I think that's the way forward to to a more improved and richer understanding of the phenomenology of dreaming, but also its neural underpinnings. What is the difference between a dream and a hallucination? Well, in philosophy, a hallucination is often described as experience of seeing something, hearing something, and so on, where no such thing is actually being perceived. So essentially, if people describe dreams as hallucinations, the idea is going to be that dreaming thereby feels exactly like perceiving, it feels exactly like seeing or hearing and wakefulness, but nothing is actually being seen or heard. So it is a percept-like experience occurring in the absence of an appropriate stimulus source. Now this type of comparison, so this type of implicit comparison with waking perception makes a number of assumptions. First of all, it's completely unclear to me what it would mean to say that dreaming, seeing something in a dream, is exactly like seeing something in wakefulness in all respects. That would require a very sophisticated phenomenological description, both of dream imagery and of its waking counterpart. And typically, those those types of comparative studies are lacking. I think a much more interesting thing is then to ask, not just is dreaming exactly like perceiving and wakefulness, is it it exactly like seeing and hearing and all of those things and waking, but first of all, to get a more detailed description of dream imagery in its own right. And it could then turn out, if we then compare these descriptions of dream imagery with descriptions of waking perception, it could turn out that they're indeed similar in numerous respects. 
but it could also turn out that they're interestingly different. For instance, dreaming is very much like waking perception in terms of its structure. So that comes back to this immersive here and now structure of dreaming. Dreaming is like wakefulness in that we have the robust feeling of presence in a world. So in that sense, dreaming is somewhat like the perfect virtual reality. We feel that we're present, we have a self, we feel that we're interacting with persons and objects, but all of these are essentially simulations created by our brains. And that, I think, is a core similarity between both dreaming and waking perception. However, in other respects, dreaming is much more like imagination. So it's a spontaneous mental simulation brought about by the brain. It often lacks the tight stimulus correlation of waking perception. It can be much more indeterminate than waking perception. So in imagination, you could have a vivid daydream, for instance, of a person, but the image can be, could be indeterminate as to what the person was wearing, whether they were wearing a blue jacket or a red, red one, or perhaps even it could be indeterminate with respect to color at all. I think dreaming can have a similar indeterminacy as well. It can kind of gloss over things. It can gloss over details that are actually missing in dream experience, but we kind of don't notice that absence, and that's why we feel like dreaming is actually quite similar perception, even though it needn't be in many ways. And then again, there are other similarities that dreaming has to imagination as well. These include developmental findings about the development of dreaming in children. So for instance, dreaming seems to develop in tandem with visual-spatial skills in children. But these also include continuities between dreaming and spontaneous thought and mind-wandering. So mind-wandering basically experiences where attention drifts away from ongoing tasks and environmental demands. You're thinking suddenly of something different from what you're actually doing. You're sitting in a lecture and you suddenly find yourself having a daydream about your next vacation or thoughts about what to make for dinner or something like that. And these types of spontaneous thoughts often have a very dreamlike, a visual, and also kind of almost world-like quality. They often center on the self. So in many ways, they're actually quite similar to dreaming. But there's a good argument for saying that dreaming is, in many ways, an intensified form of waking mind-wandering. So dreams much more even than... So in dreams even more so than in our most vivid daydreams, we can have the experience of really feeling present in an alternative reality, even though, whereas in wakefulness, we would typically still have the experience of, of being present in the actual world, in the lecture hall, while being lost. So in dreams, in many, dreams in many ways can be said to be an, an intensified form of waking mind wandering. They're much more immersive than even our most vivid daydreams. So even in a vivid daydream, you don't, even in a particularly vivid daydream, you don't quite feel present in that daydream. You still have a sense of being present and in some sense attuned to your actual environment, the place where you really are. In dreams, however, we, we lose that sense of presence in our actual environment almost completely. We no longer feel present in our bedroom. We feel that we're actually moving through an alternative reality entirely. So this immersive structure seems to be something that connects dreaming to waking perception, whereas at the same time, I think, there are deep connections between the content of dreaming and the process underly processes underlying dream imagery formation 
and spontaneous thought and imagination and wakefulness. So the way I like to think of the question of how dreaming relates to perception and hallucination on the one hand and imagination on the other hand is that dreaming, firstly, is a creature of its own. Dreaming requires a unique description of its own. Dreams, I would say, are immersive mental simulations. They're exactly perched in between perception and hallucination on the one hand and imagination on the other hand. They're deeply perceptual-like or hallucination-like in their immersive structure, but they're also extremely imaginative in the types of cognitive resources they employ and the way memories are memories from waking are, are melded together into entirely new types of scenarios and so on and so forth. And I think also if we look at the quality of dream imagery, so the individual instance of seeing something in a dream. I had a dream of my mother. Did my mother and my dream look exactly like my mother in waking life? Um, we might find that some, in some ways dream imagery resembles perception and in some ways it might resemble imagination. And also this can vary across different dreams. But one, one problem associated with describing dream, dream experience and working towards a more precise dream phenomenology is that dreams are constantly changing, and no two dreams are the same, also in terms of their experiential character. And this means I think we should leave a lot of space for variance, and we should actually say that dream imagery varies on a spectrum from more imagination-like to more perception-like. So thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks for having me. And I've been speaking with Dr. Jennifer Vent about dreaming. Hope you've enjoyed the program today. I've certainly enjoyed your company. And do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.